I think the quote was literally something like, if you're a 50-year-old housewife and you haven't written the novel yet, you're probably not going to write and this a was a guy book. Yeah. Oh, dear. And I, and I remember, like, first my heart sank, and then I just thought, like, I can, I can swear on this, right? I was, you can swear on I this. I was just Please. like, fuck you, you motherfucker. Right. I am going to, I'm going to make you sorry. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. I'm Rolf Potts, travel writer, author, teacher, and now podcaster. Today I talk with novelist Cynthia Sweeney, who got her big break as a writer at midlife in her mid-50s with her best-selling novel The Nest, which is about four adult siblings coming to terms with a shared inheritance and their own spectacular dysfunction. This book is currently being adapted into a film by transparent showrunner Jill Soloway. In this episode of the podcast, we talk about the anxiety that comes with getting a seven-figure book advance. We talk about getting a mid-career master's degree and how it helps Cynthia's writing career. We also speculate on how becoming successful in your 50s differs from breaking out in your 20s and how you can use your own sense of fear to get things done as a writer. We actually start in the middle of a deviation about therapy and hugging, which I realize are topics I already discussed with Ari Shafir a few episodes ago. I swear I'm not totally obsessed with the protocols of hugging. It was just something that I had on my mind when I was conducting these interviews in California last year. If you have your own unique insights about when and when not to hug someone, by the way, please do send them my way. Anyhow, here's Cynthia, interviewed a few weeks ago at her house in Los Angeles. Lately, I've been listening to Esther Perel's. Um, she does a podcast through Audible, which is super frustrating because their app is terrible. But um, huh. it's real life therapy sessions. It's like an hour of an actual therapy session. She's a okay. yeah, it's fascinating, and it's all with couples. She's a marriage therapist. Um, That's actually one question. Uh, I thought about starting my podcast by like asking people questions that wouldn't be in the interview, like that, that have always um, fixated me, like, do you hug and when? Because like I'm a Midwesterner, I never yeah. know when to hug yeah, somebody yeah, yeah, versus yeah, yeah, when yeah, to say yeah, hello. Yeah, yeah. And then I was never conditioned. I had this very frugal farm girl mother. And so uh-huh. the idea of like therapy is rich people. Um, oh, t- I grew up, I grew up like suburban Catholic. So yeah. like, like I thought therapy was. I, I, I thought it was shameful, frankly. Right. It was just like, that was not something people, that was like well, yes, something people yeah. in Woody Allen movies did. That was not the, right. something people in real life did. Well, I didn't even watch Woody Allen movies. It was just this <laughs> strangely foreign thing to me. Um, yeah, so it's just like, <clears throat> I was sort of, grow, I, I grew up with this idea that hugging someone you don't know really well is invading their space right. and don't do it. And then just therapy that, you know, that isn't for us. That's for other Have people. Have you ever lived in Los Angeles? I haven't, no. I literally, like, I mean, I lived in New York for 27 years. Um, like, I, like, everyone hugs you here. Yeah. And, like, your doctor at the end of an appointment gives you a little hug goodbye. And right. Like, this is weird. Like, right? this yeah. is weird. But now I, but now I'm, now I've adjusted. It's a source of anxiety for me. And I swear eventually we'll talk, yeah. we'll get on top. That's, 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 <laughs> this, is, this is fine. Um, but, uh, like, I'm, I'm comfortable in, like, European countries where people just lean in and do what they're supposed yes. to do, right? right? But if it's uncertain, then it's just like, <clears throat> am I... be really awkward. Yeah, I realize, like, I don't want to be sort of cold fish guy. But, right. but at the same time, I don't want to be inappropriate... Going yeah, into no, the hug. Like, I don't feel like I need to hug my electrician. Right, right. <laughs> well, what happened, I went to sort of an evangelical Christian college when I was young. Uh-huh. And evangelicals are really huggy, you know. Yes, I grew yes. up in sort of a German Lutheran church, maybe a, a corollary of, or yes. parallel to the Italian Catholic upbringing, where you just don't hug people at right. Whereas, like, I would, I would, like, hug my friend's dads, and I'd come home and try to hug right. my own dad, and it's just like, whoa, there. <laughs> interesting. That's very interesting. I mean, Italians hug constantly, but not strangers. Mm, mm. And um, I, although I grew up Catholic, my best friend's parents had an evangelical group within our Catholic church, and that was fascinating because I was in and mm, out of that ooh. just as an observer and a friend, mm. and... Um, and it, I mean, that's a whole crazy story, but yeah. With, yeah, that, that's a whole other podcast, yes, I think. Yes, that is truly uh, a whole other podcast. 
<laughs> you know, I think my sister, my sister sort of fell into evangelical circles <clears throat> in high school, and I think it was sort of for the hugging. You know, oh for that, sure. That, that theologically, yeah. it didn't yeah. make any sense at no, all. No, no. But she just sort of liked. You didn't yeah. have to be self-conscious about hugging. And then, actually, our school, because my sister went to the same one, it was Evangelical Quaker, which sounds absurd. That does sound crazy. Um, but West Coast Quakers are just a different animal oh, than really? East Coast Quakers. Really? And they're, they tend to be politically progressive, although I wouldn't characterize my campus as... It was, right. it was progressive for evangelicals, but right. um, the default was to evangelical and not to Quaker. And, and right. evangelical is very post-identity, right. post-ethnic, all that right. stuff. right. And in, in some cases, post-Bible, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. That people yeah. just, it, it, there's sort of this paraphrased understanding of the Bible and oh, nothing, no accountability. Sure. Yes. You know, if there's one thing to yes. be said for tradition, it's accountability. Yes. So. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, I, I didn't come. Maybe if there's a sequel. We can talk say, about the iterations another, of American maybe Christianity. Maybe there's another, like people who have had a front seat at evangelical <laughs> Christianity. That's a, that's a, might be a podcast. Well, that topic fascinates me because it's a um, it's a metaphor. People throw it out and they've never experienced it. It's just right. it just sort of stands for unenlightened right wing people. Right. But if you've experienced, you've, you've seen the complexities therein, yes. and then also you understand why it's so anti intellectual and why it's so emotional right. and all that stuff yeah. too. Yeah. So. Uh, but what we have in common is not. Well, maybe some dabbling in evangelical Christianity. Maybe, maybe, yeah. But our degree of separation is MFA. Yeah. No pun intended. Degree of separation is MFA degrees at right. Bennington College. Right. Uh, and we both were sort of mid-career, mid-life mm -hmm. MFAs. Now, I was 38 when I started, and mm -hmm. as I understand, you I were was 50. Four, you were 50. Yeah. Not even 48. You were 50 no, I was years 50. old. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I'll have a little intro where I talk about your accomplishments mm -hmm. as a writer. Mm -hmm. So. Before The Nest came out, you decided for some reason at age 50 mm -hmm. to, to take an MFA. Why? Well, it, it, it started a little bit before that. I'd always worked as a writer, as like a copywriter, corporate communications, marketing, branding. That was my thing. And um, it just started to become really boring to me. And my it was a really great job to have when my kids were younger because of the flexibility and I could take projects as I could do them. And um, I don't know, I started to feel like, I started to see my life as it is now, then, which is you kids You saw into gone. the future. Well, oh, okay. like okay. kids gone, um, what am I going to do? And I started looking around and seeing what the other moms whose kids had flown the coop were doing and I didn't like what I saw. And um, I just thought, sort of at the same time, I was part of this really interesting internet group of women. We all found each other through various ways. It was a very idiosyncratic uh, forum. We all knew each other. It was like sort of everyone was one degree of separation. We were all creative. We all had kids. We were all sort of trying to figure out what to do next. And it's kind of, I haven't thought about it this way before, but it was kind of like, akin to 70s consciousness raising where everyone was like hey you're really like you're a good writer you're really funny you're a great singer why aren't you doing that and is that was that the invitation into the group or was that what was being said <clears throat> no, inside that was the group? being said inside the group okay. and um i just started feeling like yeah why aren't i writing what i want to write like why am i writing website copy for this for a bunch of 28 year old you know internet weirdos who, um, so I just, I started, I dipped a toe in very slowly to fiction. I, it, it really intimidated me. I was worried I couldn't do it. I'd, so you hadn't written fiction? Not since my 20s. Okay. I gave it like a very half-hearted attempt in my 20s and convinced myself that because it was really hard, then I just wasn't talented enough and couldn't do it. Well, and, I want to come back to the idea yeah. of talent and what that actually yes. is. Yes. So. But and I, I actually had a friend and I was trying to do personal essay writing and with some, with like some success given that I really hadn't done it and didn't know anyone. And um, I showed an essay that I'd gotten some nice feedback on but couldn't place to a friend. And she said, I think you should write it as a short story. And I had so uh, convinced myself that fiction writing was not something that I could do that I said to her, oh, I can't write fiction. And she was, she was, 
so disbelieving. And she was like, what do you, like, what do you mean? What what did you mean? I I think I, I really think I had, because I loved fiction so much, I think I had really imbued it with some sort of special, like it was really, like it was like being an opera singer. Like you were either born with a voice or you weren't. You know, you can't decide to be an opera singer if you can't sing. Mm. And, and what was sort of astonishing to me once I thought about it a little harder because I had been a writer for so long, I understood that you just have to be able to tolerate writing poorly for a long time. But I knew I was a good writer and I had made my living as a writer all my life. And so I just thought, okay, I'm going to give this a shot. And if I, I think in my 20s, I thought that if I didn't succeed, it would be soul crushing. And so at this point, Did I was. Did that inhibit you in your 20s? <clears throat> Oh, absolutely. But it was also, I mean, there was a lot going on there. I think I just wasn't, um, I think I was, I, w- I was young, but I was very immature for my age. I think I thought, I thought things that were hard somehow meant you shouldn't be doing them. I don't know. It was very, it's, I mean, I think it's a youthful notion. And that's interesting to acknowledge because I think there is something awesome about your story in that you made that departure early in life, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. And you sort of talked, you had such an aura around the hard mm-hmm. work of writing that you somehow talked yourself out of it, but you came back to it. Right, and I think I just, you know, I loved fiction. I read <clears throat> novels and fiction all the time. And, um, and, and so this first thing I sort of sat down and tried to write was really not good, but like a half of a page of it I thought was good. And you say when this first thing, first thing when you're... The essay that I tried to turn into or in a your, story. I was like, your, I was probably like 45 when okay. this was going on. Okay. 45, 46. And my, the friend who I talked about, she was like, let's start a little writer's group. And um, I wrote this short story that was not very good. But like there was a page that was good. I just thought, you know what? I would not be embarrassed for anyone to read that. And I think the difference between 28 and 48 was that I just thought, oh, okay, well, if I can write one page, I can write 10 pages. And if I can write 10 pages, I can write 50 pages. And I, I knew it wasn't going to happen quickly, but I just sort of decided to, um, well, like I said, I dipped a toe in. I thought, I, I, I can try this. And then sort like in the midst of all of this, we moved out here. And uh, once we got settled here, I took some courses at the UCLA Extension, and within a year I was applying to Bennington, and, and, then, I, and then I just thought, well, I'm, I have to figure this out quickly. If, I, if I'm not good at it, I want to know so I can move on to something else. So was that one of the reasons for maybe trying the MFA to see if you were good or yes. not good? Yes, it, okay. was, it was to, I knew, I knew that I was, better than the people in the class I was taking, but I knew I wasn't good enough to get published. At UCLA Extension or Bennington? At UCLA Extension. And so I just thought, um, yeah, I just sort of wanted to put the pressure on, like hardcore and challenge myself. And it was also a, a way to prioritize it in my life and prioritize it within our family unit. This is something I'm doing and we all have to be on board here. Right. Well, I want to touch on you know what the MFA at that point in life um, does for you because mm-hmm. I think structure is a big part of it. Mm-hmm. But uh, I want you to hypothesize a bit. Had you done the work at age 28, mm. what would that work have looked like? And sort of a <clears throat> sub-question of that is all of that writing you did in the business world, did, mm-hmm. it, did it help? Did mm-hmm. it hinder? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know about the first question, and I, I, I try not to think about it too much because it's just, I try not to traffic in regret that much. Um, I think I probably would have written, if I would really um, persevered and found a community, which I think was also a big thing that I was lacking, uh, I think I would have written some really um, mediocre fiction. And eventually gotten better. Um, 
And, you know, all the writing I did in the meantime was absolutely helped me, not so much from a, you know, craft or writing perspective, but that I, I, I didn't have any problem telling me, uh, having someone tell me that what I was doing wasn't good enough or I, I really was hungry for feedback. Um, I'd had the experience of being edited by really good people and I knew that that was great. I knew that I'd be edited by people I didn't respect and that was okay. That also teaches you something. Hmm. And, um, and I also just think I was so... I was so grateful after so many years of writing about things I didn't really care about to be in this community of people who loved the things I loved and and to go to those residencies and just be immersed in fiction and craft and lectures. It was like, it was dreamy. I mean, it was really great. I've um, actually, through listening to another podcast, I've heard a certain set of, of uh, advantages that one gets from going to an MFA program, and I'll, I'll mention them mm -hmm. to you, and you can just see if any of these apply yeah. to you, is that they outline seven things that screenwriting programs help you with. And they mm -hmm. weren't necessarily recommending MFAs. They were just saying, right. look, this is what is at stake. And so they said information, and I presume yes. that's like craft. Yes. You know? um, the certification, the degree. Mm -hmm. Uh, which was part of it for me because I wanted I was curious about teaching at the university level. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't the degree. I don't. I don't think the degree really didn't apply to you. No, and it wasn't my goal. Yeah. So um, resources, which in the film world means library. Well, it, libraries yeah. in both senses. Did yeah. You, did you use the Bennington Library? Um, I didn't, but I would say that my experience with pretty much all of my teachers really opened doors to uh, the type of work I didn't gravitate to. And that was really important in my growth as a writer. So, Well, that sounds like that belongs to another category, which is the professors, the mentors. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the structure it gives you. Absolutely. Uh, the deadlines. 100%, yeah. Within to write. The peers, the community. Uh, yes. Uh, alumni. Yeah. Which is interesting. I wouldn't have thought about that myself, but I actually know a lot of Bennington people I didn't attend with. Yeah, I mean, I think that falls time. under community, you know, mm -hmm. that those, those um, roots sort of go wide. And the last one they mentioned was fun. It, it, it's fun Yeah, I mean, my God, it was great. Yeah. So, of, of, and keeping in mind, you even have to agree with those categories. Mm -hmm. what, what were the big factors for you as far as make the MFA being worth your time? Um, well, I mean, like I said, I really wanted structure, I wanted deadlines, I wanted feedback, I wanted community. And I also knew from having uh, written all kinds of things over many years that I could be taught stuff. Uh, that, you know, there is, I mean, of course there are things you can't teach someone who wants to write, but there's a lot of stuff you can teach someone. And I knew that there were things I was doing wrong and I, and I knew also I could figure it out on my own, but I knew it would happen a lot more quickly if I was in a program like that. So what's an example of something you were taught, something that you came um, in? Like, I mean, something really as basic as, well, you have to, you know, you have to write in first person or third person or second person, if you dare. Um, and make it consistent, or if you don't, there have to be there has to be a reason for it. You know, you can't just. And that's something that sounds so basic, but when you start writing fiction because you love reading fiction and you're you don't understand sort of the rules, uh, it's very easy to float in and out and not even notice that you're doing that. Um, you know, picking whether you're writing in the past tense or the present tense. Um, you know, then just very simple things uh, like, especially short story stuff, uh, you know, the, the, the characters have to change. Something has to happen. You have to create dramatic tension, you know, and, and that's sort of how to do that, like neat ways to do that, how to make transitions. Um, Storycraft, really. Yeah, Storycraft, yeah. You, as I understand it, Brett Anthony Johnston mm -hmm. sort of mentored He did, you yes. And yes. gave you some key advice. 
so what what did he what did he say? Yeah, I mean, wait, do I is this are you looking for a specific answer? What is the key advice he gave me? <laughs> well, I'm saying didn't didn't he see a short story and say, look, this yes. is bigger than a short story? Yes, he did. And then yes, this... he told me to write. Um, he told me to take a short story I was struggling with and told me to, that it was a novel, yeah. and um, and you know that was really exciting. And I think that falls under the you know professor part of why you get an MFA. When, you know, your spouse or your girlfriend or your friend says, I think this is really good, it's hard to take seriously. But when someone who you admire and um, who's a great teacher and an amazing writer says, this is like, this is good. This is what you should be spending your time on. That that was something that um, he told me early on, very early on. In, in that first conversation where he told me that he thought what I'd given him was the beginning of a novel, uh, he said, if you can keep this up for 300 pages, someone's going to publish it. And I, that was like a little, you know, what's the thing you have when you meditate? A mantra. I just, like, I had to remind myself of that all the time when I was feeling stuck or frustrated or like I wasn't sure I could finish, especially after I left Bennington. Well, there's maybe, I don't know, 100, 1,500 MFA programs around the country. Yeah. You have to assume that several times a year, various teachers tell their students that this short story should be longer. Yeah. But you actually put in the time, did it, yeah. wrote, a, wrote a best-selling novel. So yeah. um, how, did, how did you, what do you attribute to that success as someone who came in without really the vocabulary of craft mm -hmm. and the idea of how characters could, should change? To someone, you that book was published like two years after your MFA, right? Um, I graduated in th three years. Okay, still pretty soon from yeah. from not really um, having your head wrapped around craft yeah. to actually being on the New York Times bestseller list. So, what resources did you have? Was it was it all of the years of writing in different genres, or what? What would you attribute that um, success to? It was fear. <laughs> I really didn't want to fail. I, I didn't want to be one of those people who's you meet at a party whose first you know twelve years talks about the novel they're working on. Um, you know, I had asked my family to make sacrifices for me to to do the program. I I just I wanted to finish the book. I just wanted to finish the book, and I wanted to feel like it was the best book I could write. And and everything that happened after that was like no one was more surprised than I was. But I, but I do think that I loved it. I loved writing every day. And the farther I got into the book, the more fun it was. And I felt like I had been given this unbelievable opportunity and I didn't have to have another job. And most writers would kill to be in that place. And I felt it just sort of a sense of karmic responsibility not to waste it, you know, to, to actually finish the book and see what I could do. And, and I just really focused on that. I, I didn't think beyond that point. It's sort of a pragmatic exercising of fear. Totally. That it, that it's yeah. all about you utilized your fear to get it done. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I asked a friend of mine who's um, a very accomplished nonfiction writer, Peter Ames Carlin. He writes... Um, biographies of Bruce Springsteen, Paul Simon, Paul McCartney, and we were having a conversation and I said something to him like, I just, I don't know how I'm going to, you know, get all this work done. How am I going to get all those words done every day? How am I going to, and he was like, like the, the Grim Reaper, baby, like he's coming for you. So like, we don't have, we don't have exactly, we don't have that much time. You just got to like sort of channel that sense of of urgency and I did. I think there's a, a thousand ways to not write. So Oh, that's for sure. So was that just did you did you channel your fear every day sitting down and and doing your work? Or was it a sort of a big picture? No, and I think I mean it helped that I'd been a freelancer for a long time, so I had a disciplined nature about work and you know, when I was writing the book, my kids were still living at home. They're not living at home anymore. And so my day sort of ended at three or four. And I just, 
It was keeping anxiety at bay. If I have a good writing day, I feel good about myself at the end of the day. If I have a shitty writing day, I feel a little shitty. And that's not to say that a, a shitty writing day doesn't mean I didn't write enough words or anything like that. It just means that I didn't try hard enough. Like a good writing day could be a day where not a lot of words show up on the page that I think are useful, but that I'm actually in the project, I'm in the book, I'm in the world, I'm figuring stuff out. A good writing day can be a day where I'm staring at the bulletin board that I keep and trying to move pieces around and figure out what's missing and I'm just taking notes and researching. Like that's a good writing day. And I think that's a good uh, consideration for creative people mm -hmm. because staring at the bulletin board counts, whereas counts. staring at your dirty car and thinking you should wash it is a distraction. So Staring at your Twitter feed does not uh, count. Twitter is, yeah. It feels like Twitter has gotten worse as far as just, yeah. it's almost like it's designed to distract anymore these days. Well, you know, it's funny because when I was trying to finish the first draft of the book, I was having a really hard time and I, I had to have my husband just sign me out of social media and it really helped. And I'm feeling, I mean, I'm, I'm in the very, very early stages of a new book, but I already feel that necessity, that need to cut out as much outside noise as I can so I can free up my brain to be occupied by this world, by that world, not, you know. Well, that feels like such basic advice that is so applicable now. Turn off your social media, yeah. you know. Yeah. It's a, you, can, you can fritter away hours by hours. accident. Yeah. Hours by accident. Yeah. It's quite alarming. Yeah. Um, now you, you went to grad school at age 50. I did. And that's actually a common, I mean, there's a lot of women, empty nest yes. for lack of a, yeah, lack of a better word, no, in, in sure. that demographic. Yeah, and, that's and how women have a midlife crisis. They right? go back to school. Such a constructive <laughs> midlife yes, crisis, exactly. isn't it? And so like I teach uh, courses in Paris each summer and a huge percentage of my uh, students are that oh, really? um, uh, demographic, exactly. Mm -hmm. And it's a very, they make great students. Yeah. Um, but they have common anxieties and, and um, self-consciousness yeah. about their place as women who've, who've come into this learning process yeah. in, in midlife, for lack of a better word. So what advice would you give, like sort of as the exemplary well, you know, I superstar? Really, I really worried a lot about my age. And I think that that was another part of that fear and anxiety. I just felt like I can't, like the older I get, the harder it's going to be. Um, and I remember I read, um, uh, you know how poets and writers do, like they interview agents and agents. They have special and, issues. Yeah, special issues. Yeah. So, and one of their issues, one of their agents said, uh, and the things he was looking for for new writers, uh, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to say that I'm looking for young people. I want someone at the beginning of their career. And if you're, I think it was, I think the quote was literally something like, if you're a 50-year-old housewife and you haven't written the novel yet, you're probably not going to write And this a was a guy? Book. Yeah. Oh, dear. And I and I remember like first my heart sank and then I just thought like I can, I can swear on this, right? I was You can swear on I this. Was just Please. Like, Fuck you, you motherfucker. Right. I am going to I'm going to make you sorry that you are not someone I queried for my book. Yeah. I don't even remember who it was. But anyway, um and when I sent out my query letters, I was nervous about, I didn't say how old I was. Query letters for agents? For agents. Okay. Um, so here's the advice I have. The most shocking thing to me was how utterly uninterested everyone was in how old I was. Completely uninterested. My agent never asked me how old I was. And I, at that point, if you Googled me, you pretty much got nothing. Um, you maybe could have figured out how old I was, but he didn't ask. I mean, he knew I, I had gone back to school, that I had teenagers. Uh, none of the editors I spoke to when my book was out on submission had any curiosity about how old I was. Many of them mentioned how gratifying it was and how many people they were talking to who had sort of done exactly what I did, which was return to fiction. I mean, calling... What I did, a return is generous, but um, so I would just say, just like nobody cared, and and then of course it became uh, 
something that they used to help market the book that everyone was very interested in. The oldest living debut, debut novelist. novelist. Was that the yes, catchphrase? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Not true, by the way. But anyway. Right. Um, but that's marketing, right? What, it doesn't need yeah, to be 100% that, no, true. No, no, no. I knew, and I, and, I, and I knew that was going to happen. And I mean, it was a lot like, uh, you know, promoting a book is a weird experience. And, um, but, uh, but, I mean, truly, in, at the place where it matters, finding an agent, finding an editor, selling the book, nobody cared. Nobody even asked. They just care about the material. And that's great to keep in mind, you know, for, yeah. for writers who might be self-conscious about that. Mm -hmm. And when you think about it just conceptually, um, and I've seen it teaching writing before, you have a super smart 25-year-old. They just have less life experience they to bring to, to their writing. About. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so it even falls back in sort of these old models that sort of central driven that the, the, the Ivy League or Seven Sisters graduate right, will become right, successful in their 20s. Right. But now I think maybe, I don't know this scientifically, but maybe that playing field has leveled. Well, I also know. think it's an old publishing model, right? Mm. It's like, oh, we're going to... Collection of short stories. Yeah, we're gonna, and we're going to like nurture you as a writer. And, you know, maybe in your late 30s, probably in your 40s, you're going to write the big book and our investment's going to pay off. I don't think most publishers operate like that anymore. It's really book to book. Um, if 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 a manuscript lands on their desk that they fall in love with, nothing else matters. And that doesn't mean it has to be a manuscript that they think is going to sell a lot and make a lot of money. I know my editor is just as excited by that manuscript as by uh, something that you know is a quieter book where she knows the author is not going to sell a lot, but maybe win some literary awards and get a little recognition and, and then write a novel and then write, you know, like she loves that person too, but it really is, it's the quality on the page. And, and I think that, um, I think it's probably much harder for younger writers to break through right now because publishers don't have that kind of patience. Hmm. For cultivating yeah. voices through the years, yeah. Um, so I they guess they don't it's... have the budget, frankly, mm. to publish books that they don't think are going to sell, which is a shame. Um, but it is not, you know, yeah, it's not the old world where you know Philip Roth could, you know, you'd pluck someone. Well, John Irving's not a great example. Well, maybe he is a good example. Like he wrote a lot of books before. Garp made money, you know, and and I think it was possible in those days to get an advance that at least allow you to modestly live, and then to get another, and then to get another, while they were patient waiting for, you know, the book that maybe would would earn out. But I don't think that happens enough anymore. Doesn't happen as much. But the flip side of that is that you can be in your fifties and you're not being yes. judged yeah. by that old model. No, so. You talked about uh, dropping the manuscript on the editor's desk and, I, desk, and I heard a funny story about you submitting The Nest the weekend after Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so you have, what was the strategy for that? That was my agent. Okay. Uh, that was his strategy, uh, Henry Dunau. He's um, brilliant, menschy, fantastic guy. And I mean, we were just, I was finishing up my edits for him in, in early November, and he said, um, you know, we either have to uh, send it out in early December, the first week in December, and then we have to wait because it's the holidays and no one's paying attention. And I really didn't want to wait till January. And I uh, I gave him edits like the Wednesday before, the day before Thanksgiving. And he was really pleased with the manuscript. And he said, I think we're going to land it on everyone's desk on Monday and they will have just come back from spending Thanksgiving with their families. And I don't think either one of us knew what a brilliant move that was. So, so the nest, the story of the nest being about a dysfunctional family. Right. Dysfunctional families are on the brain right. uh, after right. Thanksgiving weekend. Right. And it paid off. And yes, it did. <laughs> bidding, bidding more seven figures, which becomes yeah. a part of your story, just like the, like uh, the yes. oldest living novelist part of the yes. story, that this uh, very generous advance became mm -hmm. a part of your story, too. Yeah. Did you find yourself sort of fighting against that narrative oh. part of your persona? <clears throat> that was really hard. Okay. Um, in, in what way? Because it, it, 
It sounds great, and then you pause and think about it, and then it becomes a part of your literary persona as a first novelist.、Yeah. So, sort of maybe walk us through、yeah. that experience a little bit.、Um, well, first of all, I was astonished when the sums were going that high, and I was I was scared. And it was something I talked to Brett about. I talked to him all that week, every night, and we talked about the pros and cons of having the money be that big, and being a debut novelist, and the pressure it would put on the book, and the pressure it would put on me.、Uh, and then there was a point in the week when I said to、uh, Henry, "Like, can we stop this? I feel like I'm on a runaway train, and I want to pull the emergency brake." Henry, being your agent, my agent,、mm-hmm. and he said.、Um, You know, well, no, it doesn't work that way, and、um, and when the deal closed, I was simultaneously I was equal parts ecstatic and horrified, and I knew that they were submitting a press release to Publishers Weekly, and I all I kept saying to everyone is, are they going to know how much? Are they going to know how much? And and. Um, Megan, my editor, said, "Well, we'll never confirm an amount, but the truth is, everyone in publishing knows it's a small community, and someone who didn't get the book will probably confirm the amount for them." And and I just sort of that whole weekend kept my fingers crossed that it it would the news would be buried, and then. You know, I got a text from a friend saying it's up on Publishers Weekly, and it was you know debut novel sells for seven figures. And then I re- then my heart really sunk, and I said to my husband, and I said to Henry, and I said to Megan, we're never getting out from under this. And it's a counterintuitive emotional arc, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. It's it's this,、uh, a younger person might dream about it. Anyway, yes. I'm jumping into your story, but no, it just you're feels absolutely weird,、yeah. right. And I think, but I think I was old enough. I'm old enough to understand everything that would come with that, and including the desire on some people to see the book fail. And I wondered about that. It brings so, the haters. Of course,、bit. of、yeah. course, and I get it. Like I mean, I really get it. And and so that was uncomfortable. It was really uncomfortable to have everyone in my life know how much I'd sold the book for. I'm a private person. I. I was. I felt very exposed and very、um, guilty. Thank you, Catholicism. <laughs> like undeserving. I really felt. You know, I felt all of those things. I am really lucky that I have really good friends, some of who have been very successful, like Amy Poehler, saying to me, "Like, stop it. Like, just stop it." And her book was had just come out. And she said,、uh, "I wish you'd been talking to me all week. I would have, I would have made you hold out for more money. Like writing a book is the hardest thing I've ever had to do, and you know, like every writer deserves a million dollars, which is true." And then,、um, and then it was just in the pre-publication publicity. It was impossible to、uh, every time the book was written about that was part of the story in the early reviews. Is that part of? Buzz generation. I mean, do they intentionally、so. mention that a、so. lot? Yeah, I think so. And it was also it, it was there was there had been a, a bunch of books who that sold that year for a lot of money to debut novelists. It was me and Emma Klein and Stephanie Damler, Stephanie Clifford. Like there had been a bunch, and so there also this story started. There was a story happening that was、uh, Yah Jossie. Her book sold for a lot. You know, there was a bunch of people, and and so the story started to become like, is this what's wrong with publishing? Which is kind of a fundamental misunderstanding of the finances of the big five publishers who wrote all those advances.、Um, but nobody cares about that story. They like the Schadenfreude story, you know.、Oh, yeah. So. Um, and then the early reviews、uh, all mention the advance, which infuriated me because I feel like that's an abdication of your responsibility as a book reviewer. That you know how much how much I was paid for the book does not affect the reader's experience of the book. But of course, if you write about it in the review, it does. And so you were fighting against yeah, the and for and, and many for,、um, for uh, you know after. 
you know, we had to manage it. We had to manage it with press. Like I would just, I had a deflecting thing I would say about it and refuse to really talk about it. But um, it was a re- it was really stressful and I don't want to make it sound, I understand that being stressed out because you got a lot of money is a really easy kind of stress to manage in, on some level, but it wasn't easy because I really cared about the book and I just wanted the book to stand on its own to, when it went out in the world. I just didn't want that to be part of the story. Um, so, yeah, so for example, two years ago, I would not have had this conversation with you. I would have refused to talk about it. Now, the book came out a year and a half ago. Yeah. Has anything changed? Like, Oh, yeah, it changed. I can tell you immediately, the minute it became a bestseller, everyone stopped talking about the advance. So, immediately. So there was a, a very distinct anxiety period. Um, yes, and but it was also, to me, a very distinct you know, kind of like ill will period. Like there was just a period where people really wanted to write about the advance because this could have been a, like a really dumb idea. And um, so was there relief then uh, when you hit the bestseller list um, as opposed to joy or, or was that a separate emotion? Think, by the time the book came out, I was sort of in a daze and Yes, of course there was relief. I really I really wanted the book to do well. I love my publisher. They worked so hard. I wanted all their hard work to pay off because that's really what it's about at that point. I mean, of course it's about the book, but there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. They put a lot of muscle behind the book, behind the launch of the book. Um, I really love everyone there and they work so hard. And so I saw that in some ways as their accomplishment too. Like we were all sharing this and that was really cool and I was relieved. I think I was just more relieved when people stopped talking about it because it rarely was a conversation that felt like people were genuinely curious or happy. It always sort of, in fact, one of the first interviews I did, the journalist began by saying, so tell me why I shouldn't hate you. Okay. And, so that was, I mean, that yeah. sort of felt like the, that was the vibe I was getting from the people who were interviewing me and talking to me about it. And so I was just kind of happy for that to stop. Did you feel like you had to perform gratefulness or graciousness? Oh my God. Well, I didn't have to perform it because I was, I didn't have to perform gratitude because I could not have been more grateful. I definitely had to perform graciousness at certain times and be more self-deprecating than I think was maybe necessary. And I also absolutely think that a man in my situation would not have been questioned in that way about the value of their work. Hmm. It's interesting that there's... Um, there's sort of a hashtag first world problems for sure. to this, yes, but absolutely. that doesn't mean that it's not a thing. You know, it doesn't mean that there's not a lot of anxiety right. tied up in this. Right, right. Um, and so, uh, I mean, it's just, you know, it's just to me, what's interesting about it is, um, you know, on paper, I had the fantasy debut novel experience and, and I, and of course I wouldn't want anything to have happened differently. But um, I think part of it was I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for that. I just was completely unprepared. And, it, you know, that's, I mean, again, still a first world problem. But um, I, I think it's worth acknowledging both things. That it is a first world problem, yeah. but that doesn't mean that it doesn't right. carry its own set of right. It, it was It was a part of the story for me. I'm curious about the gendered thing. Was the why shouldn't I hate you person, male or female? She was female. Okay. Um, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to totally make it a gender thing. I don't think that's entirely true. But I do think um, I was talking to a male author while the book was out on submission who had sold his book for a great deal of money. And he, he had zero qualms about anything. He was like, oh, my God, I want you to sell this book for a million dollars, you know. <laughs> and um, 
And I, and it, there was a, there was a point, a conversation where there was at the very, very end, there were, there were negotiations going on for whether it was going to be world rights or North American rights or world, world or world English. And I, and I said, I, I, you know, well, we're trying to push for world English. So then the price will go down. Right. And he was like, the price is not going down, you know, and I like really wanted the price to go down. And he was, you know, and he was just like, you're insane. That almost feels like it's it's its own story, you know, yeah. like because yeah. there's some, something very narrative about that, yeah. the, the counterintuitive aspect of that. Jumping back a beat real quick, um, how did you know Amy Poehler? Was she? I've known Amy for a million years. Um, my husband has always worked as a writer and producer for Conan O'Brien. When Amy, when the UCB guys, Amy and Matt and Matt um, and Ian moved to New York City from Chicago and started the UCB Theater. They used to be on Conan a lot, and, and I met Amy probably in 1996 or seven. so we've just been friends for a long time. The reason I asked about her is that I'd read that part of your women's online writing group mm -hmm. included Jill Soloway, is that yes, right? Yes, that's correct, yes. Um, which sort of takes me to my next category mm -hmm. of questions, which is... Um, she didn't she get attached to yeah, she's uh, like the, the film the, version um, of, of the book? Yeah, she's producing the film and it was optioned by Amazon Feature Films with Jill's production company producing. So We are you doing the screenplay? No, I was going to and then I started and said, Oh no, this is not for me. <laughs> well let's talk about that. Not just the screenplay specifically, but I think it's interesting that you have a novel that started as a short story. You had a lot of background in nonfiction writing. Mm -hmm. And when we were corresponding before I came over here, you'd mentioned mm -hmm. musical theater. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right? Yes, a long time love of mine, yes. Yes. And so I think the idea of genre is something that interests mm -hmm, me. Mm -hmm. And so and actually adapting a novel to a screenplay mm -hmm. is, has been tough for generations. Yes. You know, the whole idea of, a, oh, it was better as a book. Yes. And in a, in a certain sense, a novella or a short story might be easier to, to develop I think that's true. I think that's true. So what did you come up against? Uh, what, well, why did you decide not to? I think the first part of the story is why I decided to, because I didn't really want to do it. And Jill sort of talked me into it. And she said, I'm going to teach you how to write a screenplay. I'm going to teach you everything I learned from doing Transparent about how to write a scene. And she wrote for Six Feet Under she did, as yeah. well. So there's, mm -hmm. a, there's this dysfunctional family she, yeah. thing. Yes. Uh, well, shot she, you through. know, and she's been writing forever and directing now forever. And I admire her and her work so much and her sensibility. And so that just seemed like an opportunity I couldn't say no to. But then I Love Dick came along and she really didn't have time to work one-on-one -on -one with me. So I found myself in a development process, which was the reason I didn't want to be the person who adapted the book in the first place because I, even though I have never experienced any of that, I just felt that having to be in a development situation for a book I'd already written was going to be no fun. And I was 100% right. <laughs> It was no fun. <laughs> I wonder, if, you know, um, I wonder how many people have actually adapted their books. Gone Girl, Jillian uh, Flynn, right. adapted hers, but not too many. Not people too do many, that. and and it's funny because when I decided that I just really didn't want to do it, I, I, we worked on some outlines. The people I worked with were great. It was just, I also felt like, um, in a way that, you know, that had absolutely nothing to do with the process or how it works or um, you know the people I was working with. I had just spent most of my professional life working with other people, writing to other people's desires, very often sitting in a room where people who knew nothing about writing were trying to tell me what to write. And this was not that. This was people who knew everything about screenplay writing, but they were trying to tell me how to tell a story I'd already told. And it felt like I'd gone back somehow. And I just decided I didn't want to do it and I wanted to um, move forward and let them give the material to some screenwriter who knew what she's doing and, and could make really own the material and hopefully make it into a great movie. And um, as I was going through all this, uh, my publicist from Echo had had dinner, I think, with Dennis Lehane whose latest book is an echo book, and he said that he 
would never adapt his own, he would adapt someone else's book, he would write an original screenplay, but he would never adapt his own material. And I think that's true for most authors, and I see why, because it's just, it's, it's just not fun to have to reimagine that material. I was so tired of it, and I just thought, oh, I cannot spend the next two years with these characters, and, and in this world, I want, an, I want new people in a new world, so that's, so now I'm an executive producer, and they do nothing. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. I, I think this ties in a little bit to that creative writing maxim of killing your darlings. But in this yeah. case, you're killing healthy darlings um, yeah, for another even, genre. I mean, at first it was exciting. I sort of liked reimagining the movie visually and thinking about how I could take people in scenes and turn them into visuals and dialogue. It was kind of fun. But... You know, the process of development with a studio and a production company is multiple outlines and lots of conversations and conversations about motivation and relationships. And I just thought, no, I've, I, I have done, I'm done with these people. So, meaning the Plum family from the book. So. Right. That's, that's probably healthy. Was it ever, I'm just curious about this, because of Jill's background, was it ever considered as a TV series, because it, in this day and age, there's so much prestige, yeah. and it's sort of the new parallel to the novel. Right, is a, is a TV series. There's more you there can do with it. There was interest. There was interest. There was a lot of interest in a TV series. I didn't want to sell the rights to a television series because I didn't want to be involved in a television series, and I felt squeamish at that time. This was right as the book was coming out about the material living on without me. Outgrowing you know, the parameters of yeah, the which it would novel. probably after season one, and the, the George R. R. Martin problem. Yeah, right? yeah, and I and um, and and Jill had come to me and said, uh, I, I can't do a series because it's too similar to Transparent. But if you're interested in a movie, I would be interested in producing it, and that just seemed like a good idea. Plus, you get paid a lot more for a movie option than you do a TV option. Didn't know that. Yeah. Good and since most thing, projects sit on the shelf forever, it just seemed like that's the advice I give everyone. Take the most money. And so this musical theater thing you mentioned, mm -hmm. is this a brand new project? And you meant, is it, <coughs> where, where does that um, tie in and how did you come into this? Well, I'm yeah, I'm trying to get a new book started. I'm still figuring out who the people are and what they do. I think they're involved in the theater. I have just always loved, I grew up in a musical theater listening family that was the music that was in our house all of the time uh, and I have just always felt a very strong connection to that form and and I love I love live theater and so I'm just you know one thing I learned from writing the nest was that if you follow your passions and use them for the for the book then it's it's fun a fun thing to do but I think that um, is one reason why the material is strong is if you're writing about things that you really care about so yeah I'm trying I'm sort of trying I'm trying to figure out who how they're how they are in this world and I think it will start in New York and move to LA so that's just um, I don't know it's just something I've always loved I've always loved it I'm a huge Sondheim fan. I think the documentary Six by Sondheim is, like, I tell all my writer friends to watch it. I think everything he says about uh, lyrics, writing lyrics or songs applies to any kind of writing. Do you pair with a composer then? or? Well, I think different people do it differently. He composes and writes lyrics, uh, but he doesn't ever write the book for the show, which I think is really interesting. I think it's different depending on on who you are. And then I just think the whole, you know, writing, most writing is very solitary and reading is very solitary, but theater is a communal experience and I find it very moving and um, I feel very filled when I'm in a theater, when I'm experiencing a story with other people. I mean, it's the most... It has to be, you know, aside from sitting around the fire telling stories, the oldest form of storytelling, uh, the oldest genre for sure, 
it sounds like the idea of community is central to your career because finding a community with your online group and with Bennington mm -hmm. sort of slingshotted you into this mm -hmm. new position. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, um, are there advantages to being the successful older writer, to coming into that first taste of, um, like compared to if this had happened, if you'd had that uh, yeah. big advance and yeah. bestseller status in your first round of creativity when you were younger? I think, I think um, you know, I think, yes, it's just the advantages of age. You're a little more grounded. Um, I think that I understood inherently that although, you know, getting, getting that sort of advance and that recognition was great, um, the, the real reward for me was writing the book and finishing the book like that. I, I absolutely believe that with all my heart. That was the validation, that outsized validation was um, great and also anxiety producing. But the thing that I loved was sitting in a room all by myself, day after day, making shit up. And I couldn't wait to get back to that point. And it took a while to sort of shake off the past year and a half before I felt ready to be with myself because I'd spent a lot of that year kind of disassociating from what was going on. Well, that sounds healthy because there's the old yeah. maxim that the joy of the work is the work. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. not quoting that correctly. But yeah, just... no, but I mean, I, I think if you don't think that, you're, you're probably in for, a, you know, a, let, a disappointment. Um, well, again, it goes back to the idea of the, the anxiety-inducingness of the seven-figure advance, you know, yeah. um, which is what people who might not fully appreciate that the work is the joy of the work, they might idealize that. Right. In fact, by right. the time the work is done, that's less important. Right. right. And so I guess it comes back to something we touched on earlier, that like, what is talent? Because mm. you you were sort of a, the same person at, at a mm -hmm. younger age, mm -hmm. but yet... Um, and then obviously not everyone whose advisor tells them to turn a short story into a novel right. finishes it or right. gets, gets it published or gets it on the bestseller right. list. Um, and not to put you on the spot too much, but no, how, would I, you, how would you characterize what talent is? Because I, I mean, think sometimes people don't, they see if you're, they think if you're talented, then it's going to express itself. Yes, yes. You know. I think a very common misconception about any kind of person who creates something out of nothing is that if you're talented, like, like it, it will just sort of come out. Like it has a life of its own. And, and I just think that, you know, obviously if you want to be a writer, you have to have a love for language. You have to have <clears throat> some sort of affinity for words and sentences. You have to care about that stuff. You have to love story, all of those things. Um, but then it's just hard work. It's just work. And I, and I, and, and then, you know, yeah, I, I think it's just work. I think it's just, you have to have some modicum of interest and then you have to apply yourself. And I honestly believe you have to, a huge part of it is you have to tolerate yourself for a long time. You have to tolerate yourself and you have to tolerate not being good and sort of push through that. And all it takes are a few things that make you happy, that satisfy your own standards to understand that you can do that. Like once you understand you can do it. And, but then there's still a whole lot. There's, you know, I throw away many, many more pages than I keep. And that's okay. That's just part of the process. And I think that's good to hear. Yeah. You know, I think people idealize the creative process. Yeah. Um, and they, they just sort of see, it, it's the old news model of just sort of Absolutely. letting the genius flow. Yeah. When in fact, yeah. there's very few people who have that genius tap. Yeah, and I think, I mean, you know, I've heard writers uh, who say, oh, my, uh, my characters take over and they tell me what to do. And I, great, that sounds uh, improbable most of the time. <laughs> I'm, maybe there are people who have, can do that sort of creative channeling. I have to eke out everything, but that's okay. There is no, 
I, I think it's also, you know, there's so much out in the world now about writing. There's a million blogs. There's a million things about books. There's people tweeting about it. There's podcasts. There's, you know, there's everything. And I, and I also think it's really important to, if you want to do it, of course, you're curious about it and to listen to everyone. And I, I am almost always reassured by listening to writers talk about their process and their experience. But some, you know, some things will just not, it's like, it's like being in an MFA program. Some things will not resonate with you. Some things will not work for you. Uh, it's, there is no specific formula. Listen to a lot, you know, be open to trying things and you'll, um, you'll know when something is helping you. You mentioned earlier that you loved writing. You loved being in the writing. Mm -hmm. I've often heard people say, oh, well, I don't love the writing. I love having written. So is that well, a... Well, yeah. I mean, sure. I... I um... So is that an assessment of hindsight that you love the writing or when you're in it? I think every once in a while, not often enough, you are in it and and you're writing in a way that you know is, is good and is going to probably stay that usually comes sort of after struggling with a piece of material for a while um on the very rare occasion i had very I, I can think of two chapters that just came to me really easily um and i and i think yeah it's always i mean it's it's great when you go back and read something and you're really pleased with it and you feel like it's working or you see the potential. Uh, and, and, but that doesn't happen. You know, there, there are far more, far more days where at the end of the day, you're like, Oh, I don't know if I get anything done, but you're always getting something done. And how do you keep the, the faith? How do you keep powered through that besides fear of death? I, it's my job. So you think about it vocationally. Yeah. It's like the thing I know how to do. Um, yeah, it's my job. So after all this process, sort of the, to finish things out, uh, what have you learned uh, from hmm. in, actually in the year and a half since the book came out and in the maybe mm -hmm. 10 years since this mm -hmm. whole process started at a sort of a counter-stereotypical time of life? Hmm. What have I learned? Um, well, I've definitely learned to trust myself and to sort of follow where I think I should be going, even though it's maybe seems frightening and, uh, you know, I worried for a long time that I sort of missed the boat, um, that the big, you know, treehouse of writers was closed. <laughs> Accepting no more membership. That letter had been yeah. pulled up. Yeah, keep out. <laughs> um, and um, there is no clubhouse of writers. It, it's you make your own membership to torture this metaphor. Um, and I also learned that I like the work better than I like the recognition for the work. Uh, I am aware that that's much easier to say when you've had recognition for your work, but. Uh, I like writing a book better than promoting a book. Um, and I don't, you know, I was in the very fortunate position to be able to pursue what I wanted to do and to not have to worry about not having a job. So, you know, that is something that a lot of writers don't have. Um, I don't know. You know what? There are just I. There are no shortcuts. There's no way to make it easy. And it's probably good to hear. Good for people to yeah, hear. Yeah. Um, but it's really. I mean, it's unbelievably gratifying. It's the most rewarding thing I've ever done. Is tackle this thing that I was really important to me, and that I really loved. I love novels, and the fact that I wrote one is still kind of amazing to me. And uh, I'm I'm really glad I did it, and and I and I I really feel so strongly that you know it's I mean it's so cliche but it's just, it's never too late it's never too late it's just never too late. I think that's a great. 
point to end on. Yeah. Because it has been uh, something we've come back to over the course of the interview, and I think it's a good thing to leave people with. Good. So where can we find you, and what's coming up next for you? Um, well, I... And by find you, I mean like online. Yeah, I'm, I have a website. It's Cynthia-Sweeney.com. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Not really on Facebook anymore. Um, and, you know, I'm just I'm trying to get a new book started. So hopefully I feel like I'm getting a little road under me. So hopefully I'll gain a little momentum with that. Well, good luck with that. And Thank thanks you. for talking to me Thank today. you. Thank you. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including Cynthia's novel, The Nest, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. As always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow with research support by Jan Futterman, who also puts together the show notes. Music is by my nephew, Cedar Van Tassel. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.